So my family has been recently going through what I would call a new season of Potter mania. It's gone in phases for the Martins. Um, I am talking about Harry Potter. I read all the books several years ago um, when early on when the phenomenon was getting going before all of them had come out. Um, and then just a few years ago, you know, our eldest Elliot was old enough to be interested. And so I read all the books again with him and he was reading them and Jason got into it and he read them all and we watched all the movies. Um, and then it's kind of been on a lull for a few years. And now our daughters have recently become fascinated with the Harry Potter universe, partly in maybe because their cousins are as well. And so once again, we're reading aloud for the first, the first book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone in our house. And going back and rereading these books afresh, I'm experiencing once again that one of the parts I think is the most entertaining and delightful about the series, how we as an audience are invited to discover and delight with young Harry as he becomes acquainted with a world he was previously unaware of, right? This magical universe into which he actually was born but was raised apart from, right? I think this is actually where a lot of the imaginative joy of author J.K. Rowling's work lies, is describing this world that's much like our own, but with these supernatural elements that are hidden from view, right? A world, a wall between two train platforms is the magical portal to find the Hogwarts Express. Or an ordinary-looking pub called the Leaky Cauldron can lead you to a busy shopping district full of potion shops and magical creatures and places where you could buy a wand if you just knew where to tap on the garden wall. Unlike magical universes like, say, Middle Earth, right? That are like an entirely different world than the world we exist in. The wizarding world of Harry Potter inhabits much of the same spaces as us muggles, right? Just hidden from view. As Harry's introduced more and more into this wizarding world, not that far from the one he's always known, he begins to understand that magic has always surrounded him. He just couldn't always see it or understand what it was. So when he receives the invitation to Hogwarts, it's the beginning of a journey to discover what's been around him, even within him, his whole life, but hidden from view. He thought himself an ordinary, uninteresting, unappreciated boy in an ordinary, unmagical world. But as Harry soon learned, there was more to his story. Well, today is the first Sunday in the season of Advent. It's a season that much of the church has historically marked over the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, a season of preparation, of waiting. Advent, I'll put this up there on the screen, comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming, okay? We are attentive to Jesus' coming in the world. To truly embody the spirit of Advent means we don't skip to the Christmas feast, we don't fast forward to the manger and the angels and the celebration. We journey as we experience Christ's coming. We reflect. We consider the longing in the world that Jesus came to. The depth of the darkness in which the light dawned. We consider where our own longing lies. 
where darkness around us remains. Our culture tends to woo us to skip the longing. Some stores put their Christmas trees on sale even before Halloween, right? The music is playing all around us by now. Lights are hung on our streets. Our calendars might be filling with holiday celebrations. We're doing some of that with Haven this month. And I'm not trying to say we're wrong to participate in that. But if we focus solely on the feast, the celebration, the cultural traditions that have arisen around the winter holiday, much of which I would say has little attachment to actually the life of Jesus, we miss an important opportunity to receive some of the gifts of this season, the gifts of Jesus actually coming, not just once upon a time, but maybe here, now. So we're going to take some time when we're together over the next month to mark the season, to take a journey together, to observe, to puzzle, to wait, And yes, eventually to celebrate. And my hope is that as we journey together, this winding path of anticipating Jesus' coming, we'll have experiences of receiving the gift of God's care for us at Christmas all the more sweetly. As we do this, I thought, in the spirit of entering into a church tradition that's bigger than our little community with Advent, which Advent is, it might be interesting for at least our two regular Sunday teachings that Advent, uh, this Advent, to actually look together at the Bible texts from the lectionary. Okay, The lectionary, if you don't know what it is, is a schedule of readings that most liturgical churches, meaning like mainline denominational churches, some other churches, they traditionally preach from. I have never preached through the lectionary. Generally, I appreciate the freedom and flexibility that just being able to preach in a series, respond to what's going on in the world, what's on my heart, where I feel like God might be calling us to talk about. I like that freedom. But I do think there's also wisdom in having an invitation on occasion to look at texts that might not be top of mind, might not be the most comfortable for me to, to, to preach about. And I think particularly when we're entering into a season like Advent, where we're looking to participate in practices that go beyond our little group here, trying to gather some insight from our brothers and sisters of other Jesus-centered traditions around the world, I thought it might make sense to maybe consider the same passages that a lot of our other brothers and sisters are considering today. Okay, Enter into a bigger conversation. Consider how it might speak to us. So what I found when I began to research how other churches, um, when I began to research what this Sunday would be, actually kind of surprised me. Maybe uh, it's a little new to me. Maybe this is not. If you're from a lectionary tradition, you're aware of where, where Advent starts. But, um, but for me, this is a little different because the lectionary doesn't have you start at the beginning of the nativity story. It doesn't even have you start with an announcement of a miraculous conception either Jesus's or his cousin John. Instead, it starts with Jesus himself, not the baby, but the grown-up in the last days of his life. So we're going to look at the story that is kind of the main lectionary text for today. And for context, I'm starting it a bit before the traditional passage so that we get the setup, where, what this is coming in the middle of, and then we'll move into the main text. So it's on your sheet As you'll see, half of the text on your sheet is in bold. That's the actual lectionary text. 
the uh, first few paragraphs are, are really just context for us, okay? So if you want to, you can read along there or you can read on the screen. Starting with Luke 21, verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow, widow has put in more than all of them. For they all offered their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had to live on. Now, while some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things you are gazing at, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another. All will be torn down. So they asked him, teacher, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, watch out that you are not misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. And when you hear of wars and rebellions, do not be afraid. For these things must happen first, but the end will not come at once. And then we'll skip ahead a little bit. Jesus um, speaks about the disciples themselves experiencing a lot of persecution on account of their faith. It's kind of grim. And then he describes the destruction of the very temple they are looking at. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are inside the city must depart. Those who are out in the country must not enter it because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing their babies in those days, for there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away as captives among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then we finally get to our lectionary text itself. where Luke describes Jesus saying this, And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth nations will be in distress, anxious over the roaring of the sea and the surging waves. People will be fainting from fear and from the expectation of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man arriving in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to happen, stand up. And raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the other trees. When they sprout leaves, you see for yourselves and know that summer is now near. So also you, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But be on your guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. And that day close down upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will overtake all who live on the face of this whole earth. But stay alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that must happen and to stand before the Son of Man. Anyone feel like some eggnog right now? Okay, this does not feel like a particularly festive text, right? (laughs) It might feel even a little downright freaky, a little more Halloween than Christmas. I think, though, if we press through 
our initial discomfort. I felt it when I was like, wait, why did I decide to do this lectionary thing? (laughs) Um, I think there's something profoundly helpful here. So I'm going to name up front that besides what can seem like the dark imagery that Jesus is using here, one of the reasons this passage might make us feel a little unsettled is that we might have heard people use texts like this to try to frighten, even manipulate people into certain faith practices and beliefs. Sometimes even with very declarative predictions about how and when Jesus is going to come back riding on clouds and how the universe, as we all know it, is going to end. And I think we're right for that to make us feel a bit uncomfortable. But just because people have used Jesus' words in ways that are unsettling, even triggering, doesn't mean that the words themselves don't have something important for us, right? So I'm going to acknowledge that we might be bringing some baggage in to this passage, and I'm going to just name that and then see if we can lay some of the baggage aside and try to receive something fresh and life-giving from this story. Cool? So what's Jesus talking about? One word that might come to mind is apocalypse, right? Apocalypse. And this is appropriate. This is actually important. Jesus does seem to be using apocalyptic language. But that may not actually mean what some of us commonly think, okay? When many of us hear the word apocalypse, we think of destruction, we think of violence, we think of a cataclysmic event that's the end of all things. But that, that's come to be how we commonly use the word, but it's not actually what the word historically meant. Okay? Here's, here's your little language lesson. Apocalypse comes to us from the Greek, apocalypsis, which rather than being a word to, dis- to talk about violence or destruction, is actually for unveiling revealing. If you want to fill in your blanks, here you are. Apocalypsis means unveiling or revealing, unmasking could be another word you could use. An apocalypse was a revelation, something that has been hidden being made clear. An apocalypse says you may think you know this story, but there's more going on here than you can see. Maybe there's a magical universe hidden in plain view you were never aware of. There's more to the story. This is connected to an ancient genre of literature that was common throughout the ancient world when Jesus was writing, when uh, Israelites before him were writing, and it was called apocalyptic literature. That's what we call it. And the most famous examples of this genre in our Bible uh, are in the book of Daniel, in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. You'll notice the word revelation right there, right? But these aren't the only places we see in our Bible apocalyptic passages. Jesus seems to be drawing on the tradition of apocalyptic literature here. So I think it's important to understand a little bit about what that tradition is, what it's meant to communicate, okay? So I'm just going to give you a thumbnail sketch like a moment in the seminary, okay? A few characteristics that are generally true of ancient apocalyptic literature, including our text in the Bible. First, there's a heavy use of symbolic imagery. A heavy use of symbolic imagery. This is one of the things that makes 
interpreting apocalyptic texts kind of tricky, right? Because part of the genre is to use highly dramatic symbolism to communicate a vision of what will be revealed or unveiled, but it is not meant to be understood literally. Okay? It is meant to communicate something, but we don't always know what the context is. The book of Daniel includes images of like wild beasts in violent conflict with what he imagines as the ancient of days, he calls them, the one who's imagined to be the divine. And this conflict happens alongside what's described as, he says, quote, one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. That's the image that's part of Daniel's big apocalyptic vision. Okay? And it's clearly the image Jesus is drawing on in our passage. Right? He's referencing Daniel. But what he's using this symbol to refer to might not be clear on the surface. Another thing that makes these passages challenging is that the events are often described through prediction. Okay, this is characteristic too. Events are often described through some sense of prediction. The authors seem to be speaking prophetically in some way of things to come. Okay, but most biblical scholars think that these passages, like in Daniel, are actually saying much more about the immediate circumstances and what will soon be in, unveiled there, like imminently, like soon, then sometime far off in the distance. Does that make sense? So again, it's a genre that can use symbolism to unmask. So the language and the pictures might be this, like on this cosmic scale, but it's meant to talk about political realities in the here and now. So Daniel's four beasts are generally understood to be the four rival kingdoms that Israel was struggling with and being oppressed by in his time. Many scholars believe that the book of Revelation tells us much more about the political upheaval that the early church was facing in their time and how they were to understand it and navigate it than it tells us about some literal events in the distant future. Does that make sense? So there's a sense in which these predictions, through sometimes bizarre symbolism, Seek to reveal a deeper truth of what's happening here and now, what's coming in the, in the soon. And they often have to do with the toppling of unjust powers. And that brings us to our third characteristic. Apocalyptic literature calls out injustice, often from the perspective of the oppressed. That is a core part of what apocalyptic, why it exists. It was meant to call out injustice, often from the perspective of the oppressed. This literature says these structures of unjust power you assume are eternal because they're all they can, you can see. These are finite. God is moving through history to topple unjust empires and usher in a different kind of way of being together. We're going to reclaim political language, and we're going to call that the kingdom of God. That's what this literature is doing. So with all that in mind, as our background, let's take a closer look at Luke, okay? So I included the lengthy setup because I think it gives us really important context for what Jesus is naming here, okay? The first part of the passage, before we get into the lectionary text, the chapter begins with Jesus Jesus noticing the vast disparity between various folks who are dropping their offerings in the offering box at the temple. I've preached on this incident before, 
And I've pointed out that often this passage tends to be looked at very simply as Jesus praising the faith of the widow, right, who gives everything she has to the temple. But to only look at it that way, I think you're missing an important piece of the puzzle because Jesus is also lamenting a system that would exploit this woman's generosity, a system that's set up to enable such vast economic inequality, a system that's corrupt and would have this poor widow believe that giving all of her resources so the stones of the temple can be beautiful is somehow God's plan for her. The incident with the widow is connected to everything that follows. Because we go from Jesus pointing out this gross inequality between those who are dropping these sums of money that barely make a dent in their bottom line and this woman who gives her meager coins and it's all she has, to Jesus' disciples marveling at the impressive magnificence of the temple building itself. Look at these fancy stones. Look at this craftsmanship. Look at the sheer size of the place. Perhaps you found yourself in a similar place, taking in the magnificence of an impressive building. There are a lot of them around here, right? We live in an area where companies are currently spending vast sums of money on their headquarters, right? You got the Googleplex. We got the Apple spaceship. There's the Salesforce Tower in the city. And we have to know, all of these are more than utilitarian, right? You do not need that in order to have enough office space, for your workforce. They do more than just provide the office space. They communicate something, right? Strength, prestige, creativity, power. One biblical scholar I read suggested that perhaps the disciples here are so interested in the building because they genuinely believe they're going to take it over. They, they think this is going to be their cool new headquarters very soon. And it makes sense why they would think that. Jesus has recently ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, emblematic of a coming anointed leader. He's cleared this same temple of the corrupt money changers. He's now preaching and healing here every day in the temple courts. So in their understanding, their fledgling startup is about to go big. They're about to acquire a multi-billion dollar company, be put in charge. And Jesus' response to them, <laughs> guys, don't get attached. All of this is coming down. He's popping the bubble. He's shattering the pipe dream. He's waking them up and unmasking the truth. The thing you're in awe of, this is unjust. It is built on the back of impoverished widows. And because of that, it is antithetical to the way of God. It cannot stand. There's more to this story. All will be torn down. Jesus makes clear that this corrupt temple system isn't sustainable. And truthfully, it wasn't. About 35 years after Jesus spoke these words and before Luke recorded them, the Roman Empire, the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem. For months, Jerusalem was under siege until the Jewish defenses broke down and the Romans made their way into the heart of the city and their future emperor Titus led the charge, heading down toward the temple with the hopes of claiming it for his own. He wanted to repurpose this temple to make it a temple for the Roman emperor 
and their gods. But as they attacked the temple, a fire broke out, and it was soon out of control, destroying the whole temple, much of the city with it. It was, as they say, apocalyptic. Jesus called it. He saw it coming. He knew there would be a downfall and that it would be costly. It would be painful. Not just for the corrupt leaders who were most invested in and responsible for the system, but for the innocents who simply were in the wrong place at the wrong time. But Jesus knew something else. Something that I think is really at the heart of our lectionary text today. Jesus knew that when the faithful and the vulnerable suffer, when those who've been oppressed are caught up in the collateral damage of the empire's downfall, when it feels that the foundations of the earth are coming apart at the seams because the most deeply entrenched structures of power are falling, that is when the divine is drawing near. And yes, there is grief and there is fear and there is loss, but there is also the eternal God showing up for those who are caught in all of it if they can only perceive this one who is on their side. So Jesus reaches for this image that Daniel hundreds of years ago had used in his vision, an image of one like a son of man coming on clouds to describe this clarity he's trying to communicate. He often used that image of himself, calling himself the son of man. And when he does, I hear him saying, I, I am your cosmic deliverer. I am the one who shows up when all seems to be lost. I am the one who stands with the broken in times of despair. If he had lived in another time or place, maybe he would have said, I am the knight on the white horse. I am the mama bear who will not leave her cub alone to be destroyed. I am the great Jedi warrior, or I am Dumbledore. But he uses Daniel's language because he knows what it means to those he speaks to when he describes a son of man coming on the clouds. Brian McLaren is an author and speaker, and he, alongside some other biblical scholars, point out that there's another provocative resonance of this term, son of man. Because in Hebrew and Greek, like these languages, the son of can also be understood to mean a new generation, a new generation of. And man can be understood to mean more than men, like masculine, like humanity, right? So another one way one could hear this term son of man is a new generation of humanity that is being called forth in the wake of unveiling. Jesus may not be, have been only using this imagery of Daniel's to point to himself as a deliverer, but to the body of people he's commissioning to accompany him in that work, a new generation of humanity, a new generation of mankind to show up where deliverance is needed. McLaren elaborates on what this might look like in our day in this way. He says, to apply these words to our contemporary context, we could say this, 
As racists increase their virulence, a new generation of humanity is emerging. Humanity that doesn't fear difference but sees it as a sign of strength. As we witness a morally repulsive resurgence of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, we also witness a new generation of humanity that's building a movement of multi-faith solidarity. As resentful and frightened people use immigrants as a scapegoat, a new generation of humanity is emerging that cares about immigrants and works to protect them from further abuse. And as the wealthy and powerful hoard more wealth and power, a new generation of humanity is being activated to care for the poor and too often forgotten. We live in an apocalyptic age. We are forced particularly in these last couple of years, I think, to confront evils that have long been with us, but have sometimes been cleverly hidden from view. But with this unmasking, we also have the opportunity to experience the rise of a new humanity, tasked to bring deliverance. Now let me be clear, because by this point you might be wondering, I'm not going to make a call on whether or not Jesus believed or expects us to believe in a literal moment when somehow around our round planet we will all in exactly the same moment see someone who looks like a human male riding clouds and descending from the sky. I'm not actually going to make a call on that. Either way. I'm not going to make a call because I don't actually think that's the point of the passage. In the same way that I don't think Genesis 1 and 2 are written to explain how planets are formed or cells divide, I don't think ultimately this text is about Jesus trying to tell us exactly how the world is going to end. I do think he's trying to tell us that we need to remember that so often the world we're invested in, what we see as eternal, the world as we know it, is finite. The systems we're invested in, the religious systems, the government systems, the capitalistic systems, none of these are eternal. But the divine heart is. The divine heart is. And the divine is moving throughout history to bring greater equity and restoration to all creation. Mama God is moving to redeem her creation. Amen. Jesus is embodying that work and is commissioning a community of people to embody it with him. And I don't know, I do not know exactly what the decisive end of the story will be or if there will be one that we could even imagine in any meaningful way at this point. But I do know That through passages like this, Jesus seemed to be calling his followers to pay attention, to look out, to lift their heads and be alert for the signs of the divine presence in the face of destruction. You may see only calamity, but this is really an apocalypse. This is an unveiling. Notice the signs. There's more to the story. And that brings us to this little parable in the passage that I think holds our invitation for us this Advent season. Look at the fig tree and all the other trees, Jesus says. When they sprout leaves, 
you see for yourselves and notice that summer is now near. So also you, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Jesus is naming that in these seasons of unveiling, when truth is coming to light, when unjust systems are being revealed, there's also evidence of new life, of the presence of the divine, of God's alternative kingdom. But you have to pay attention. You have to be alert. You have to, I think I have this to fill in, you have to notice the signs of the coming kingdom. Like the budding leaves on a tree, You have to look at the tree. You have to notice the signs. Otherwise, you might miss the kingdom coming all around you. How do you miss the signs? Jesus offers a couple of ideas. You miss them from not being attentive. You're not looking at the tree. You've got other things going on. Specifically, perhaps you're numbing the pain of the unveiling. Perhaps you're numbing the pain of this unveiling. Jesus points to folks doing this through what he calls dissipation and drunkenness. Okay, drunkenness we understand. Dissipation, it's like squandering what you have. Squandering your time and your resources. Numbing the pain. Alcohol, drugs, sex, spending, Netflix, whatever. Right? We can pick our poison. I'm not saying any of these are dangerous or taboo in and of themselves, but when they become tools that we use to dull our fear or the grief we feel in the unveiling, they dull our other senses too, right? They dull our sight, our capacity to notice the signs. There's another way Jesus mentions we may miss the signs. He calls it the worries of this life, I sum it up as this, perhaps too much activity. Okay, some of us don't respond to fear with numbing. We respond with activity, too much. We strive to like throw ourselves into work, try to become our own saviors. The world is falling apart. I have to fix it. Whether it's through increased work, through greater activism, through gaining more and more information, maybe if I just know more about what's going on and somehow have the answer to make it better. And I think all of these practices, again, can be beneficial, but they can also fall short in their capacity to bring life if they keep us too distracted. They cause us to miss the forest for the trees. We forget there's more to the story. Jesus knows his followers feel fear in the face of unveiling. He can hear it in their voices as they ask, when's all this going to happen? How will we know? Fear is natural in the face of change, in the face of unraveling, in the face of even suffering. But Jesus is also speaking to that. Yes, there are going to be some scary times. I can't shield you from that. can't. But if you pay attention, if you are alert, if you pray and invite the presence of God to be close to you, to help you read the signs, 
even in the moments of suffering, even in the unveiling, you will not be alone. You need not be consumed by fear. You can stand before the Son of Man. I don't know about you, but this is a message I really need to hear and receive and experience in the depth of my being. Seventh season. And perhaps this is where we must start Advent. Maybe this is the wisdom of the lectionary, because otherwise this season can become just another means of numbing the pain. The season can be between Thanksgiving and like January can just be this like nostalgic drug that we take every December to forget how heartbreaking the year was. Right? How disappointing, how grievous things have felt, but that's okay, have another eggnog, right? When we do that, when we simply put on the band-aid of Christmas, skip to the feast, and even the manger, we may miss not only the pain of unveiling we've seen this year, but also the beauty, the joy, the magic around us too. Last week, I alluded to uh, the crisis my family's been going through in these last couple of months as my sister has been diagnosed with um, metastatic breast cancer. This experience has been a place where, up close, my family has been asked to look at the injustice of illness. As it has been unveiled in our presence, And yet, in that painful unveiling, there have also been signs of divine presence. Signs of God's loving, redeeming, kingdom coming, like leaves on a tree, testifying to the divine drawing near. One of these took place the week Mandy was diagnosed. I was with our friend Ginny. She invited me on a personal prayer retreat. We were at a Catholic retreat center nearby. We had made plans to go there before I knew that my sister would be result, awaiting the results of biopsies. But that was where we were. I went into the retreat knowing that things might be changing forever. She may be seriously ill. And on this retreat, I spent time processing my fear, praying with Jenny throughout the day. And then in the evening, we took some time apart for silent prayer and reflection. And I did not know that in the next room, Jenny was praying specifically for me to have a powerful experience that would be helpful in regards to what's going on with my sister. And I did. I was having this prayer experience. And You know, you would think that maybe because I describe these sometimes in sermons that they happen all the time, but they really don't. I do not have, like, mystical experiences, like, every week. It's it's really pretty rare. I haven't had one for years um, that was very clear. But I had this experience in prayer where it felt like kind of divine truth opening up to me. Um, And I had this picture of God as a mother um, brushing my hair, and then my sister's hair. And particularly, I felt like it was about entering into watching God brush her hair. And so I did that. And 
in this experience of prayer, I just, I watched, I observed, I felt like I saw um, this divine mother tenderly caring for my sister in this really deeply intimate way, just simply brushing her hair. And occasionally there would be these moments where she anointed my sister with something, some ointment in her hair, and as she rubbed it through, it was like light was released, there was power, and it was very fragrant. Experience that. And so I began to wonder to the mother, what is that? What are you putting in her hair? And then I saw the mother reach up to her eyes and wipe them. And she rubbed her tears through my sister's hair. And light and power beauty were all released. So I sat in that for a while. And then I texted my sister. I let her know, I just had this amazing picture, and I think it's for you. My sister would not call herself a Christian in any way. She's deeply spiritual. Deeply spiritual. And she actually connects with the divine feminine. So for her, to hear this picture from her was extremely beautiful. And she texted me back. That means so much, I can't even tell you. And I just got the news, it's cancer. A few weeks later, she invited me to come and join her sacred community to the Divine Feminine and share that picture and invite her community of women to pray the divine would be accompanying her. That she could experience the mother anointing her with her tears, brushing her hair even though her hair has now been separated from her body. I couldn't have made that up in that moment or have known what meaning it would have. And I hate that I need to experience this unavailing but I can't, my only source of hope and comfort is that if you're not alone in it, the divine is showing up. This is my fig leaf right now. So this is my invitation to you. As we end, I invite you to be attentive and reflective this Advent season. I invite you to notice the fig leaves budding on your trees. I've actually created a little arts and crafts project in relation to this. So you'll see during responsive worship, when you go back to the stations, there is a tree, and there is glue, and there are fig leaves, and there is tape. And I'm going to be inviting you to ponder during worship today and in the weeks to come. We'll have this throughout Advent. Where are the places you've seen this year? The divine showing up, even in the pain of unveiling. Where are the places the Son of Man is coming on clouds for you? What are those signs? How can we notice them together? 
May that be our invitation to this season of Advent. May we be a community that isn't numb, that isn't too busy to notice, but is alive to the real hope of the Son of Man drawing close. May we lift our heads and find the ways in which our redemption is near.